we shape the future of energy? We know where we need to be at, at net zero, but there isn't just one path to get there. Decarbonizing the global economy is going to require a multi-pronged approach. We'll need to change the way we power our planet by revolutionizing the grid and investing in the right places. Shell Energy is setting its sights on a zero emission future. Their plans for the coming decades involve investment in innovative technologies, development of infrastructure, and optimizing the next generation of energy grids. On the podcast today, I'm joined by two expert guests for a very special episode of Horizons. Joining me is Carolyn Comer, president at Shell Energy America. Carolyn brings three decades of experience and leadership across commercial environments. She has been with Shell for almost 24 years and currently heads up Shell Energy in the Americas, which is the company's largest power, gas, and environmental products wholesale marketing and trading business. Based in Houston, she is at the forefront of delivering Shell's powering progress strategy, namely to purposely and profitably accelerate the company's transition to a net zero emissions business by 2050. Carolyn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's, uh, it's good to be here and thank you for inviting me. It's truly my pleasure. I'm looking forward to a very dynamic conversation. As always, I'm a big fan of the bottom line up front. What is one thing you'd like listeners to take away from today's conversation? You know, Liz, I think the one thing I would want people to take away is, you know, when it comes to the energy transition, collaboration is the name of the game. The world's energy system needs to undergo seismic change to meet the Paris Agreement and tackle climate change and other environmental stresses. It is going to take a huge amount of collective effort. And I think it's incumbent upon individuals, companies, policymakers, infrastructure providers, capital players, policymakers. We've got to find ways to collaborate to develop the solutions necessary to deliver on the net zero ambition. Oh, I am so excited to unpack this over the next 45 minutes. Also joining us today is Simon Flowers, Chief Analyst at Wood McKenzie. We usually get Simon's thoughts at the end of our podcast, but today we are very glad to have him for the entire show. Simon, welcome to the official full podcast. Thanks so much, Liz. Great to be here. And hi, Carolyn. Hi, Simon. Simon, same question to you. What is your one key takeaway from today's conversation? I 100% agree with what Carolyn said. Uh, We're not going to get there without collaboration, but I'd like listeners to take away that we're well underway. We've started. And what we've seen happen in the last 15 or 20 years in renewables, we think is likely to play out in some of the newer technologies that are a bit too expensive at the moment, but will come through well before 2050 to help us get to net zero. Oh, you had me at technology. All right, let's dive in. I want to start by talking about changing the way we power our planet. As we've talked about on the podcast time and time again, electrification is at the heart of the energy transition. Carolyn, what are the key areas or legacy technologies which need to be decarbonized to really get us on that path to net zero? And then where do we start? Yeah, thanks, Liz. You know, if I talk about where do we start, I think it's really important to take a sectoral approach to decarbonization rather than a kind of a specific product by product view. And so if I start with the oil and gas sector, which is going to be with us for some time to come, we need to ensure that we produce and deliver the lowest carbon barrels that we can. At Shell, we see our portfolio of oil and gas will shrink over time relative to renewables and other low carbon solutions. But we're also high grading our oil and gas portfolio 
and casting a carbon lens on it as we do. For example, we have a big presence in the Gulf of Mexico, where the oil that's produced has some of the lowest greenhouse gas emissions in the world. You know, I think if we talk about electricity, the growth in electric mobility, heating, cooling, major increases in deployment of renewables like wind and solar, decarbonization of electricity and power generation for me is a no-brainer. But each sector has different needs. Some sectors are global, while others are highly centralized or localized. I think of particular importance, though, are those that are hard to abate. Shipping, heavy-duty freight transport, aviation, as well as kind of heavy industry, factories that are making steel and other products that require very, very high temperatures. Together, the hard-to-abate sectors account for about 30% of global carbon emissions every year. But even in those sectors, we see pathways already emerging. And I take aviation as an example. You know, Shell is a founding member of the Clean Skies for Tomorrow Coalition. And that's a coalition that consists of airlines, airports, fuel providers like us, engine manufacturers. And we're all working to reduce emissions from the aviation sector by making sustainable aviation fuel more widely used and more widely available. By 2025, for example, Shell is aiming to produce around 2 million tonnes of sustainable aviation fuel a year. That's about enough to power 125,000 flights on a 737 between Los Angeles and New York City. So that's just a small example of a hard-to-abate sector, but they're already moving. And I'm quite excited by that, to be honest with you, Liz. That's a lot of flights. <laughs> Simon, I'm keen to get your thoughts, too. Where, where do you think are the key areas or legacy technologies we need to decarbonize? Uh, everything from uh, from from well well to wheels, uh, but uh, much like we heard about hard to abate sector, some parts are uh, easy to decarbonize than others. So, you know, the industry has made some quite good strides. Not not necessarily universally, but uh, the keenest are doing you know quite a good job on uh, decarbonizing the the upstream side of the business. Uh, using uh, renewable power, we're we're just scratching the surface at this stage, and and some fortunate countries like Norway are uh, ahead of the game in having a lot of renewable power to do that. But it's got to reach out across the, the whole business, through the transportation side, through to refining, and again that part is is still at the pretty early stages. But we have seen companies have crank up their ambition. We want to see the action come. The, the big problem, of course, where roughly 70% of emission comes from is when we burn the stuff. And that's still a bit of a question mark. Uh, there are some sectors where it's a bit easier, it might be a bit easier to do you know, when we get carbon capture and storage and you get a high concentration of emissions happening. You know, inner refinery is a good example and, and they can be recycled or, or stored. But there's still quite big questions about transportation. You know, what, what do you do about transportation? So there's a big question mark about the use of oil and to an extent gas in, in some of these sectors into the future. Which actually, I want to talk a little bit about the growth of power and different complementary technologies at the expense of fossil fuels. So where can we find the best efficiencies with renewable power? We trade power in my business and actually we trade power in real time and power is a pretty unique commodity in the sense that it is really hard to store you know you can't put electrons on a ship and ship them across the world in order to balance supply and demand so it's a very real time but also a very local commodity and so for me the best efficiencies that we can see with renewable power is where we have the ability to firm 
and shape the supply of electrons to meet how people actually consume energy. Often the sun doesn't shine when you need it to or the wind doesn't blow hard enough. When people are actually home from the office and they're, you know, they're making their dinner and they're putting on the washing machine, that's when you really want your energy to show up. And so technologies that confirm and shape energy to meet consumption patterns, whether that's quick start gas peaking, and I do believe in the role of gas in terms of being able to firm electricity is very important, but also things like pumped hydro and batteries, they all play a key role. I think so too will other energy carriers like hydrogen that can effectively act as a storage medium for electrons. So whether it's nat gas, batteries, or some other technology that actually hasn't even been invented yet, you know, we need those technologies because the energy not only has to be cleaner, but it needs to be affordable, and it actually needs to be reliable and secure. I also think we see an increasing role for digital technologies for exactly the same reason as I said before, the real-time nature of power. And as the energy system transforms, as it becomes more fragmented and distributed as new energy sources come in, digital tech can really help to manage dispersed assets, deal with variability, help us improve forecasting, and overall help us balance supply and demand in real time. And again, do it in a way that's most efficient and most affordable. And that's really exciting for companies like mine that are dispatching power from generating assets in real time all the time. That's absolutely fascinating. And I love how you frame it, too, in terms of following that electron or our humble little electron on its journey. Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me add a couple of things then as, as well. You're complimentary. And yeah. Let, let's look at the world from another another sort of angle, you know, somewhere like Africa, where there's 500 million people without access to power. And we are used in the developed world to have sort of centralized systems. And we're, we're starting to see uh, microgrids set up uh, using solar panels out in the, in, in, in the wild in small villages and pay by phone and you don't need that big transmission grid anymore. So I think that's an efficiency that, that re- renewables can, can bring. In in some countries, we've seen uh, economic efficiency in, in so much as uh, renewables have become incredibly cheap. You know, the, the cost of solar is down by 90%. Not that we use a huge amount of that in Northern Europe, where I am. Um, but it's proved very effective in in pushing coal out of the system. And that's particularly true in the UK where we virtually no no coal. And and I think those economic efficiencies are are likely to continue uh, into the medium term. We've seen gas prices, uh, as everyone knows, soar in the last few weeks. And so uh, a combined cycle gas turbine is just uneconomic to build from new, whereas solar and in the right places, wind uh, are, are, are the much the cheaper option. As Carolyn's already said, they don't solve every problem in a power market, but in terms of bulk capacity, variable it is, uh, you can put a lot of uh, solar and wind in to, um, to beef up your system. I love technology, sometimes just for technology's sake and sometimes just because it's so cool. Simon, I want to start with you. Are there existing or emerging technologies that people should check out or that you are intensely interested in seeing that can help to transform how we power the planet? For sure. And and some of them aren't particularly new. Uh, my my <laughs> One of my pet favorites is geothermal. I, I oh, love it. Oh, mine too. Mine too. 
I love it because as a as originally a geologist, uh, you know, one of the great questions I'm constantly asked is where where do people in the geoscience departments go for the future? And and geothermal is a uh, is definitely one of those places. Uh, I I think it's the the U.S. Department of Energy has done a study which thinks that geothermal or the modern style of geothermal with a closed loop system uh, can power 10% of uh, USA's uh, energy needs, which would be absolutely enormous because it's tiny at the moment. So I'm watching that with space and you've got to drill wells, you've got to close them and you've got to get that hot water from deep down circulating through the system. So I really love that. And the other one, which is really just emerging you know we've got lots of uh, nuclear fission around and that's another story but nuclear fusion is maybe on the the, the, the new dawn the beginning of a new dawn i, I don't think it's going to be um in action for another 10 maybe 20 years or so but uh, there's almost unlimited resource if that is scalable and and commercial so i'm watching those two yeah, I mean, I think from a Shell perspective, we're we're watching the full gamut of solutions because, frankly, there is no deterministic outcome right now. I do believe if we are to make 1.5C and we are to make Paris, I think it's going to be a basket of solutions. I don't think there's one silver bullet or winning technology. The trick here is to be able to get some of these technologies actually out of the lab and commercialized at scale. I mean, that's going to be really the trick so I think there's a lot of clever, clean tech out of there, but whether it ever really makes it out of the lab and can get to commercial scale is the trick. And so in that sense, we're watching a lot more than one, two or three, to be honest with you, Liz. And I, I think if I can add to that, it's such a, such a good point, uh, Carolyn, because the, the nuclear fusions and the, the geothermals are, are, are way out there. And what we need to do is convert some of the ones that uh, are starting to get financed, like green hydrogen and carbon capture and storage, you're neither of which are really good to go in commercial just yet. We've got to get them over the line before we worry about some of the more exotics. I completely agree with you, Simon. And... You know, I think I do say to people, you know, a transition is not an on off switch. It is actually a process that we go through to get from A to B. And as part of that process, a number of these texts will come into their own in different places and at different paces. And I think that's super important. I, I think we're going to come back on this a little bit later. But now I want to pivot a little bit and talk about Shell's net zero ambitions. Can you tell us about Shell's net zero ambitions? What are they? What does it look like? Yeah, sure. Global demand for energy is rising. And we agree that demand is you know, likely to double by the year 2050 over the year 2000. And at the same time, I think it's never been so important to tackle climate change and, and, and other environmental stresses that we see. It is a dual challenge to be able to provide the planet with more energy but to ensure that that energy is actually cleaner. I actually think it's the defining challenge of our time. And so at Shell, we're embracing the transition to a global energy system. Uh, it's actually the reason why my business, Shell Energy, was set up. It's an entire business which is dedicated to building a cleaner energy future. At Shell, we're aiming to be a net zero emissions business by 2050. And Simon mentioned the hardest part is the emissions from people who actually consume energy, we call that scope three emissions. To be clear, our net zero ambitions include scope one and two, so that's the emissions from our own operations, but also scope three. So effectively working with our customers 
to ensure that they can get to net zero using the products and services that we provide. So that makes that a really, really ambitious target. We're seeking to reduce the carbon intensity of our global portfolio, which means, as I said, oil and gas will shrink relative to renewables and low carbon energy over time. And by 2030, we expect the carbon intensity of our portfolio will have shrunk by 20%, and we will have reduced our direct and indirect emissions from our own operations by half in the same period. And that's compared to 2016 levels. So we've set ourselves a long-term ambition, which is 2050. We've got our medium-term targets, but I'll be honest with you, we also have a set of short-term targets. So our executives, myself included, are held to a carbon intensity reduction target this year. And that's, that's pretty bold. And that opens us up to scrutiny. If, if we miss this, it, it possibly opens us up even to scorn. But I'm actually okay with that because I do think we need to be moving now. And bold action is rarely risk-free. Uh, and frankly, I think climate change needs some really bold action. And so what's that translating to for us in terms of actual tangible action? What are we doing? Well, you know, today Shell has over 42 gigawatts of renewable generation potential in our portfolio. We've got 1.1 gigs in operation and another 4.6 under contract and construction. We own and operate about 10% of global electrolyzer capacity. So that's the ability to actually make hydrogen. And we're building Europe's largest electrolyzer right now, the, the 200 megawatt Holland Hydrogen One. Closer to home, uh, my business ranks in the top three power and gas marketers in the US and Canada. And globally, we sell about 250 terawatt hours of electricity to, to millions of customers every day. So we're doing things now. And we're held to targets that are now, not just sometime in the distant future. And actually following up on sustainability, I, I want to delve into this a little bit. A key tenant of UN sustainable development is gender diversity. And I'm keen to get your thoughts about your experience working as a female in the energy space, especially at Shell. Yeah, thanks for the question, Liz. Um, in the energy space is one. Engineering has not always attracted the biggest number of females that we would like to see. But actually trading is another you know, I run a trading <laughs> operation and, and typically it's been viewed as quite a male and, and kind of macho environment. I have to say I'm really proud of the company I work for um, because I'm not the only, uh, a, you know, head of a significant trading business. Um, my, my, my colleagues, Stacey Pitts, uh, she's head of Shell's global crude trading business, but also Alice Acuna, who's based out in Singapore, you know, we're the largest LNG trader in the world, and that's headed up by a female. But we also have a female head of shipping, our global compliance, our global risk, our global legal, all female. And, you know, that's a, that's a fairly unique position to be in. And I really like it because it's changed the nature of the conversations that we have at the leadership level. And it's changed the conversations positively. The thing I would say, though, is... You don't, you don't kind of pick somebody like me off the street and give me the job that, that I have. It takes hard work and it takes, it takes many years. So someone with a lot more vision than me many years ago said, we're going to do this. And we're not going to tackle this as a one-year woman project. But this is actually going to be what we believe in, what we stand for, and how we do things. So I've seen, you know, deliberate, purposeful talent identification, pull-through, 
career planning and development, you know, coaching and support, all of that goes into actually making the change. And we've held ourselves again to a performance standard because if you don't measure this stuff, you never really manage it. And so we measure and we manage. And as a consequence, opportunities like this open up for somebody like me. And I feel like one of the luckiest people in the world (laughs) is I get to trade power at a time when the energy system is transforming and power is one of the coolest places to be. I agree 100%. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know that within my own data engineering teams, we have close to 50% female engineers at all levels, especially within the junior levels. And it is not something that comes easy. You don't just put a job post on LinkedIn and expect to get 50% female applicants. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes going to the drawing board and it takes identifying internal candidates that have potential and want to try something new and mentoring and coaching. And I really appreciate you sharing your story and what Shell is doing um, and just making this part of one aspect of the conversation around sustainability and not a separate conversation around a pocket of diversity and inclusion. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, diversity of thought, the the business case is proven. Yes. Diverse businesses sustainably outperform non-diverse businesses. So it, it, it makes economic sense, never mind the fact that it's the right thing to do to simply provide a, a level playing field, whether whether it's a gender question or an ethnicity question, it is just the right thing to do. All right. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about renewables growth potential. We've teed this up. We've talked about technologies. I want to specifically talk about solar, wind, offshore wind, including floating. What clean tech is going to accelerate the energy transition? And then what do you guys think the grid of the future is going to look like? Simon, I want to start with you on this one. We might run all the way through to the end with me talking about this because it is <laughs> such an exciting opportunity. I was just thinking about um, Shell's past and how it's participated in this incredible growth in oil and gas production. But actually, I think there's a similar wave of uh, clean energy that uh, Shell and its uh, peers can um, also participate in, in in a big way. And let me give you, I wouldn't load you with numbers, but uh, you know, electricity demand is, is 24,000 at the moment. That's terawatt hours. But if we're going to get to net zero, it's roughly speaking, it's got to triple. And much of that is going to be uh, renewables that, that brings it there. And low carbon uh, pr- production is about 10%, 11% of demand today, but that's going to grow to 55 to 60% by, by 2050. So there's absolutely enormous uh, growth potential. And of course, at the same time, uh, we'll see fossil fuels decline. So there's a natural opportunity to, to switch business and quote, transition, as they say. And, and it's going to be across the gamut. And, and where you build renewables, of course, is, is, is where it works. So uh, solar can be, I'm not going to say it, I'm not going to mansplain. Uh, solar will be where solar w- will be. Uh, things when you get out into wind and, and particularly offshore wind, there are, there are like solar, there are places that are blessed with resource. And you know that particular market has developed in Northwest Europe where I can speak from experience, as can you, Carolyn, we have got untold amounts of wind here. And it's 
is at the very beginning. So where solar is, is, is quite well embedded in the system, there's lots of growth there. Onshore wind has also been quite well, well rolled out. We're still at the relatively early stages of um, offshore wind, but the, the opportunity there is massively exciting. It's still a little bit expensive because it's tougher to build. It's right in the wheelhouse of big oil companies like Shell who do big projects, big offshore projects, whether they're um, piled into the seafloor or whether they're floating and that floating part is going to come. And I think the final thing I'll say is, yep, this is a massive investment opportunity. But what we've seen emerge in, in 2022 is the policy support that's going to make it happen. And really, for the first time, you know, kind of mentioned society as well, moving in line with society. Society, I think now is right on board with what the world is trying to do with renewables. I've mentioned policy, policy support. So in the EU, we have Repower EU, 72% target for renewables by um, 2035. And then, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, which seeking to bet everything low carbon, but is a, another fillet for renewables, uh, including offshore wind uh, across um, the USA. It's, it's all terribly exciting. And so, yeah, I think we're set fair for uh, continued growth uh, through this decade and well beyond in renewables. Yeah, Simon, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, it's probably a couple of things that I would add. Yeah, and you mentioned kind of society and users. I think, I think there is a space for energy efficiency and energy optimization because we do have the chance to consume less or consume more wisely uh, than we have done in the past. So I think energy efficiency and optimization technologies will play quite an important role. I agree on offshore wind. I think it is firmly in the wheelhouse of, of, of those who have explored offshore in the past. But I also think how you bring that wind onshore uh, is super important. And the development of these you know, industrial hubs, which typically are coastal. So I think about you know, places like the port of Rotterdam, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, where you can actually bring these electrons on shore, they can go straight to power, or they can get converted into something else. And so, you know, I'm quite excited about hydrogen, clean hydrogen from renewable sources, particularly when I think about these industrial hubs and the hard to abate sectors like heavy industry. I think there's something there in terms of piecing together these portfolios. I think lastly, if I go back to the hard to abate sectors, you know, we got to recognize things like nature-based solutions and carbon capture and storage. You know, they have a role to play. They can provide carbon sinks, which effectively subtracts carbon as opposed to the additive nature of the zero carbon technologies. And I think all of these things, all of them have to come into play because as I said before, this is a transition and it's going to happen in different places at different paces and likely in different ways. So when you ask what's the clean technology that will accelerate the transition, everything, absolutely everything. And I'm curious, Shell has been in the forefront of the energy of energy for decades. Why is it so important for Shell to play a major role in the energy transition? Yeah, so, you know, we we serve uh more than 1 million commercial and industrial customers. Um, we serve about 32 million consumers at 46,000 retail service stations every day. Like that's huge reach. And it means we actually have the ability to drive positive change at scale in the energy system. 
And so that's something that I think we need to be cognizant of and we need to use for the common good. We've got over 100 years of energy innovation at scale. And I mentioned before, the ability to commercialize and scale new technologies is really important if we're going to undertake this seismic transition in the energy system. I think many of the skills and capabilities that we've already developed providing the energy of today, you know, be that process engineering, be that large scale project management, you know, we're going to need those for the energy of tomorrow. So I think energy companies like ourselves have a critical role to play. And offshore wind is the most obvious parallel, but there are others. I I think on a personal basis, frankly, it's, it's the right thing to do. This is a major challenge for our planet. And I honestly, I want to be able to tell my kids that I made a difference, that, that I actually did something. And I don't know anybody who doesn't feel the same way in this industry. Uh, of course, no one company, no, no, no government, no NGO, no individual is ever going to be able to solve this challenge on our own. You know, we have to work together. I come back to the critical importance of collaboration. And that's something that companies like us have done for many, many years. And, and so we can bring that skill set to bear as well. If I let me pop something in there, because one of the things we get approached about a great deal is for advice uh, from participants in power markets on how to de-bottleneck the systems. So we've talked a lot about you know, building lots and lots of renewables, and but it's got to get from A to B. You mentioned getting offshore into hubs uh, onshore, but also you know, through through into industry and residences around the country. Uh, and often it's coming from a singular source, you know, a windy place offshore, for example. Um, and then, of course, there's other things like how do you move it from country A to country B or state A to state B? Um, and, and we've seen numerous problems uh, across different systems in Texas and Europe and uh, the Middle East in, in, in recent times. And Shell's done this sort of thing for years in, in oil and gas, uh, as, as have your IOC peers. And, and, and I think that's something that uh, big oil and gas companies, as they transform into uh, energy companies, can, can bring to bear. You're advocating for change. You're bringing capital where it's needed, but pointing out where the weaknesses in the system, because ultimately, what regulators want, what politicians want, but most of all, what people want is a, a reliable energy supply. And it's not going to be easy managing that as we grew into a, you know, a, a, a centralized uh, system from the old ways into something that's a bit more variable, a bit more technical, a bit more complicated. So I think there's a great role for companies like Shell. So speaking of the infrastructure, which we talked about a little bit, I live in Houston. Carolyn, you are also in Houston. Simon, you are not in Houston today, but one day maybe you will also be in Houston. Infrastructure is something <laughs> infrastructure is something near and dear. With this ever-growing population and our aging grid, we not only need to diversify as we've been talking about, but we also need to upgrade our infrastructure. Mm-hmm. What are some of the tools we can rely on in the future, either as a backup? or to augment the staples such as wind and solar that we've been talking about? Well, l- l- there's been actually numerous uh, examples of power not being in the right place, uh, often because of climate in the last uh, 12 or 18 months. And Texas is another good example, but we've we've had it all over Europe, Europe this summer. So we need more infrastructure. And if we think about, uh, say, interconnection between different grids, uh, you know, in the States, uh, between different uh, power markets there, 
that's got to happen, but it's not easy. I mean, you've got to get uh, environmental over the environmental challenges. So uh, nobody's pretending that's going to be simple. Uh, it should be simple, and you know, once you get over them, because then it's up to the regulator to set the right uh, return on the uh, on the on the investment that's needed from the infrastructure players. And it's much the same story in Europe. So we've had uh, you know a lot of gas being delivered by often by US LNG players into Spain, but it can't get up to Germany where it's needed. All those sorts of things. So um, there's a there's, there's a real challenge there. Then you've got within system. Yeah, how do we, and that's changing. So we've talked about moving renewables around and moving different power to, to different places. More investments needed there. The, the scale of that is very significant. Just to give you an idea, we're, we're thinking across the world about $60 trillion of spend is needed uh, on the transition to get to net zero. And uh, not far off a third of that is going to go on the the the, the, the pipes and particularly the wires uh, that are needed to, to, to deliver the electricity. And part of the solution might not be in that old way of thinking. A lot of it's got to be because it's incremental investment on that, but it might be uh, partly behind the meter, but also in local communities in the form of distributed generation and, and, and microgrids. And of course, that's been a booming industry for the last decade or so, but We've still only scratched the surface. It'll take the pressure off some of these big systems, these long-distance removal of uh, movements of uh, of power from one place to another. So yeah, it's a huge part of the equation. Yeah, I agree with you, Simon. And um, we mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act earlier. I think that's a huge step forward. Uh, as is the European activities that we've we've seen in recent years. But I think the policymakers and regulators have a critical role to play here. $60 trillion is not a small number. Now, the good news is I believe that capital exists. The question is whether or not we can attract that capital to come to energy system transformation activities. We've got to look to the policymakers to help us do that. And there are ways that they can. So the IRA is great, but there's more that could be done. I think governments actually could accelerate progress towards net zero by establishing a carbon price. And that may need to rise slowly in the 20s and accelerate in the decades to follow, because that's going to strengthen investment in lower carbon technologies, such as hydrogen and CCS, as well as the enabling infrastructure. I think policy needs to think about incentivizing nature-based solutions as carbon sinks. Um, and I think, you know, the infrastructure, you can't understate what is really needed from an infrastructure perspective for everything from natural gas to public and commercial EV charging, on and offshore renewable power transmission lines, hydrogen generation and transport, it goes on and on and on. For me, the bottom line is strong, stable policymaking and regulation. It's absolutely essential to drive low carbon uptake. It means consistency and certainty because that's what's going to attract long-term meaningful investment and change at scale. And again, it means collaboration between government and the private sector on policy that's going to ensure long-term success and profitability such that the investment money comes and it stays. Lastly, I would just mention, I think competitive markets are also really important. Because, you know, we all know it's, it's not easy to make regulation or pass legislation anywhere. But if government and regulatory bodies can work with industry, work with finance, really collaborate and, and, and hammer out optimal ways forward, regulators don't have to choose a particular technology or a particular solution. 
They simply need to be able to create the enabling frameworks for the solutions to emerge through market-based mechanisms. And, and that's so true when it comes to electrification. And you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act uh, again there, Carolyn, and it, it, it's going to be supportive of the new technologies, um, but it's also going to be supportive of the supply chain. We, we've actually hardly mentioned electric vehicles, yeah. which is one, one, one good example, but let's face it, they're, they're, they're one of the biggest uh, ways of uh, increasing electricity consumption, but reducing uh, uh, oil consumption and, and, and gas up to a point. But I mentioned it just in the, in the context of the, the second element of it, which is to try and build a supply chain uh, yeah. across virtually all the technologies. You're from uh, photovoltaic uh, through to lithium, uh, getting not just the lithium mines going, of which there are one or two in, in, in the States uh, or potential ones in the, in the States, but uh, goes through to refining as well and building their own battery raw supply chain. So um, very exciting indeed, lots of potential there. And if you imagine it can take eight to 10 years for a transmission line to get built, then we need policy that enables permitting to be efficient and effective. You know, so again, I wouldn't underestimate the role that the policymakers have to play here. And I want to quickly actually touch about the IRA. It was passed by President Biden in recent months, and it represents a real term commitment to shaping a clean energy future. Carolyn, what policymaking are you seeing that could underpin growth in renewables here? Anything specific to call out? Well, I think I've kind of, you know, I've mentioned uh, uh, a lot of it. I think transmission and distribution is probably key for me. When you have thousands of projects that are sitting in an interconnection queue, that's a problem because that's thousands of projects that could actually help deliver clean energy, but they're sitting waiting on their permits. So for me, I think the whole permitting, licensing, and again, the consistency and stability and certainty that will attract capital investment, I, I, I think they're huge. I think they're absolutely huge. Don't get me wrong. I think the, the Inflation Reduction Act is a massive step forward. Mm-hmm. And actually, not only for the USA, but, you know, I, I travel internationally with my job and I hear a lot of other countries going, we're so glad that the US is now leaning in and taking a lead because it means that others can follow. And I think that's huge. Absolutely. Simon, what are the challenges and barriers to growth in clean tech that we're seeing globally? And do you think the IRA is going to help? Well, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, I mean, the the challenges are that uh, a lot of the the manufacturing capacity and to to degree the skill set rests in in China. And uh, very pleasing to hear at uh, at G20, the China, China's president and the US president uh, had a good handshake and, and, and a good, good chat about that. But it's not just the US. I mean, the, 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 the whole world is worried about energy security and keen to build uh, their, their, their own supply chains. But it's, it's going to take years. We can't kid ourselves. We, we've touched upon mining, which uh, is not on the technology side. But um, you know, quite often technology is easier to transfer uh, than it is to uh, suddenly find a copper mine, for example. Uh, so I'd be quite optimistic. I think it has to be policy driven. 
and I think the the, the IRA uh, is is a massive green flag, uh, not just within America, but actually to technology providers of all sorts across the low carbon chain to say, you know, we're in business, uh, we're offering great tax credits, uh, come over here and be part of it. And so I think you mentioned competition, actually, you referring to markets, Carolyn, but actually geopolitical competition, I think is, um, is going to be terribly exciting because Europe's got to respond. You know, Europe was in the lead in all of this, but uh, it's probably worried about a brain drain uh, over the Atlantic into the USA. So I think it's a good time to be in low carbon technology. It's a great time to be in low carbon technology. <laughs> all right. So now I want to talk about the investment opportunity. Specifically, Carolyn, where are Shell looking to invest to power the energy transition from a capital allocation perspective? Uh, yeah, thanks, Liz. So um, currently, we're spending more than $3 billion annually on our renewables and energy solution businesses. And we actually expect that to increase over time, probably to somewhere around uh, half and half by the end of this decade. But that's only actually a portion of the overall spend. You know, there's CapEx, there's FeesEx, there's OpEx that we're actually committing to the energy transformation by the end of the decade, actually, probably by the middle of this decade at this point, we would expect around half of our total spend to go towards transforming the company into a net zero emissions energy business. I mentioned some of our, our current investments already, but you know some of the things that we do have on the slate, we're converting a number of our refining sites into energy and chemicals parks, parks that are more energy transition resilient, so producing more, more biofuels producing more chemical feedstocks that are kind of core components of things like solar panels, low, low temperature detergents, all of which are kind of, you know, energy saving. We're producing bio, but we're also very focused on sustainable aviation fuel in support of the decarbonization of the aviation sector. We're investing in my business, so power generation, both on and offshore, both in front of and behind the meter. And of course, hydrogen is a, is a very big one for us too. We, I think we currently run the biggest hydrolyzer in Europe, but obviously we're building uh, the second one, the Holland Hydrogen One, which is 200 megawatts, which is, which is a big project for us. Not only that, there's quite a bit of spend which goes into technology R&D. Uh, we talked earlier about, you know, there is a range of solutions that we're going to have to call on uh, to make the energy transition really happen. So technology R&D for us is, is, is also critically important. And Simon, I do not mean for this to be a loaded question, but how does the market look in terms of capital being allocated across the sectors? Do you think we're seeing the investment and is it in the right places? Well, the, the, the European majors, including Shell, have been uh, increasing their investment into low carbon and uh, they've not been... Uh, treated very well by investors if that's what you mean by your question <laughs> Liz um, it's been it's been it's been hard work uh, because it's been done in the face of a rising oil price and so the the legacy uh, oil and gas players have done rather well and there's still a bit of a skepticism uh, among investors about uh, the, the returns the, the the new business model uh, however, you know, our, our view is that uh, you've got to do this you know, sooner or later uh, as a big oil company. You know, our, our, our forecast in a net zero uh, world is for oil demand to fall from 
100 million barrels per day down to about 30 million barrels per day. Uh, and and it, it will happen. And it'll happen you know, quite catastrophically at some point You know, when, when EVs become super popular. EV growth is pretty rapid anyway. Uh, but when it becomes mass market, things are really going to change. So our, our view is that uh, these companies have to build uh, a resilient, uh, sustainable business model, uh, suffer perhaps the the, the, the brick bats uh, that are hurled uh, in, in the short term, but uh, will will do very well in the long run. You know, we do accept there are different ways of decarbonizing, but to create a business that's fit for future in, in 10 or 20 years time, you gotta, you've got to start now. Uh, if, if you're gonna stick with oil and gas, it's gonna be a much smaller business. Uh, if you think that uh, you can derive uh, returns uh, above your cost of capital in the medium to long term, which I, I know Shell and other diversifying uh, big oil companies are doing, is well worthwhile doing. Because the returns you're getting from oil at the moment, you know, $100 a barrel, they're not going to last forever. Yeah, if I can just maybe pick up on that point, you talk about a sustainable business model. I think what's really important here is, you know, actually at Shell, we, we have four pillars to our strategy. So one is obviously generating shareholder value and shareholder returns. The second is around carbon and really, you know, accelerating that transition to net zero by 2050. But I think we've also got to be cognizant of the fact that we need to do that by respecting nature. Um, and, you know, the, the, the oil and gas industry has played a large role in chemicals, for example. So driving the circular economy aspects of what we do. So this is not just about carbon, but this is also about being a good member of society, being a good member of the community, taking plastic waste out of the environment, putting it through our crackers and recycling it. You know, I think respecting nature is super important, but also powering lives. You know, there is a real risk that the energy transition benefits those who can afford it only. Whereas I actually think this is as much a question of social justice as anything else. I think the transition has to bring everybody with it. And so when we talk about cleaner, we've also got to talk about affordable, reliable and secure and I think that for me is really what we mean when we talk about a sustainable business model. That is actually an incredible, incredible note to end on. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us today. We gave our listeners a key takeaway at the start of the show, but we want to leave them with another. What is a main takeaway from today's conversation for you? You know, I guess I've, I've, I've got a number of takeaways, but l- let, me, let me start with two. First, I am massively energized by this conversation because it's really clear that the world is actually converging on the need to make change and to make positive change and change for the better. So that's huge. But the only way that we can achieve that is by working together, producers, users, infrastructure providers, policymakers, financiers. But if we can do that, then nothing is impossible from my perspective, but the name of the game has to be collaboration. Simon, it's going to be a tough act to follow, but same question to you. What is your big takeaway? It's there's two parts to it. So, so first, just the opportunity, which we've talked about. We even brought in some exotic technologies that just aren't on the horizon. But right here and now, there is a huge growth opportunity. And I, I, I'm sure after this conversation, the oil and gas industry has a part to play in that. It is part of the solution. 
All right. So I have to wrap up with the one question I love to ask people on my podcast. And that is, is there a special thank you or shout out you would like to give to anyone Carolyn, I'm going to start with you. Well, I'd firstly like to thank you guys, because as I said, this was an energizing and engaging conversation that gives me a lot of optimism and hope for the future. In reality, it takes a village to do a job like mine. So I would like to thank my personal village, and that's my whole team here at Shell Energy. They are the most incredibly talented, committed, wonderful group of people I could ever ask for. And Simon, same question to you. Normally, you're at the end of the podcast. You never get, a, get to give a special shout out or thank you to anyone. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to talk about my village or, or, or in, in my case, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a city, if you like, because uh, I, I talk with my uh, parent renewables colleagues, my energy transition colleagues, our, our corporate analysis uh, colleagues, and they, they've, they've all helped in my conversation here because I've just talked about what Wood Mackenzie believes and how we think we're going to power our planet. And that actually underpins our common theme about collaboration. So it's very, very apt. Very last question. Where can listeners find out more information about Shell's plan for the future of energy? The easiest way to find anything out is shell.com. And if you want to find out specifically about my business, that's shellenergy.com. Please do go, um, get educated, learn, reach out for those conversations. We all have to be in, in learner mindset because there is no deterministic outcome here. Um, so, so engage in the dialogue and more importantly, engage in the action. Carolyn, this has truly, truly, truly been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. Um, thank you for an incredible conversation. Bye for now, Liz. Bye, Carolyn. Thank you both. Bye. The future of energy is not so much a destination we're heading to, but a place we're molding with every advancement in technology and decision and policy. What we're choosing to do now will shape the world we'll find ourselves in in the coming decades. Shell is advancing the transition to clean energy by analyzing futures, investing in the right technology, and pledging efforts to electrify and update the grid. Thank you for joining us with the special editions of the Horizons podcast. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and we'll see you on the next episode.